You are now listening to The Shyest Podcast, when millions of opinions just aren't enough. decided to join us you're listening to the first episode of the shice podcast i'm joined today by my guest she is the practice director of silver lake psychology she is also my lovely girlfriend kristen ortiz say hello hello thanks for having me thank you for doing the show with me my pleasure you don't have to cover your eyes babe <laughs> it's a it's a closed studio nobody's in here but us I'm aware. Thank you. So I guess let's start by telling me a little bit about your practice in general. Sure. So we are a group private practice based in Los Angeles, which has expanded all over California and Colorado and Tennessee. And, you know, we have a a great group of therapists that specialize in different areas of focus as well as you know very different modalities with different trainings and different specialties and our mission has always really been to kind of cater to the client experience and the therapist experience because finding a good therapist is not always an easy journey especially when you're trying to use insurance and it's really hard to find providers that accept insurance or work with insurance because the insurance system doesn't make it very easy for most providers So we like to really try and make the process as easy as possible for the client and helping them match with a therapist that specializes in the areas they're looking to address and the therapist and getting to really use their therapy skills in ways that they may not be able to in different types of settings that's not private practice. Okay. And I imagine, well, you've told me that, you know, a lot changed for your business like it did with every other business, you know, starting early in 2020. So I guess take me back to the beginning of when the pandemic hit and what that did to the landscape of mental health at the time. Absolutely. So we've seen drastic changes, as I'm sure most are aware. And there's always been a stigma when it comes to mental health, but that stigma has drastically changed with COVID, fortunately. Because the focus around being in quarantine and being isolated and dealing with the loss of just normalcy in life, along with family members or friends that may have been ill, the stigma with mental health has definitely shifted quite drastically because the focus turned to mental health being important while dealing with the pandemic. This was something, of course, no one ever could have expected or really predicted would ever happen. In our lifetime, especially with how medicine is these days, but because of COVID and really having no choice but to switch to teletherapy platforms in this sense, it also changed and made it more acceptable to do teletherapy in that you can do very in-depth, real work via teletherapy, where beforehand... Even teletherapy was stigmatized in a lot of different ways because they the the perception is usually 
it's not real therapy if it's teletherapy, but it is. So we've seen a drastic shift with COVID, especially from the beginning, where, you know, the perception for a long time was, oh, this is just going to be a couple of weeks. I'll wait. And then I want to be back in person. And we obviously know quarantine and everything lasted much longer than that. So teletherapy perception also changed very drastically. It took probably about four to six weeks before we started to see the shift in people requesting and preferring teletherapy. It gives us the opportunity to really provide more access, which is what we as a group really stand for, and reach clients who maybe would never have sought therapy out because there's not much access in their area. They work nine to five jobs or 12-hour shifts and don't have time to try and find a therapist outside of those work hours. And teletherapy is giving us an option or a chance and opportunity to really expand who we can work with. And we have therapists and clients all over California. I was, you know, born and raised in California, and I'm seeing clients start with us in cities I've never even heard of in California. So the stigma in mental health in general is shifting because of being in a pandemic and focusing on it in quarantine when you remove all those other distractions around you and keeping you really busy. It's it's forced a lot of people to kind of look inward, which probably wouldn't have happened beforehand. And now we're seeing that, you know, the news, all different kind of administrations are saying, pay attention to your mental health in quarantine. And it's okay and acceptable and not in the sense that something's wrong or saying that you're bad or you're not an okay person if you're seeking mental health now. Yeah, so I guess that would have been my follow-up question would be, did the... Did the need for like an increased sense of mental health awareness come from the client side or from the provider side? I know the government stepped in and made some changes to insurance policies to allow for teletherapy, but it wasn't also the same kind of campaign as, say, other public health crises like smoking or things of that nature where there's a lot of money behind it. It's very public. Um, so did you see it from the administrative side? Did you see it coming from the clients pushing more for therapy? Was there a, a greater demand or because there was more access and more visibility? Is that what all of a sudden created the demand? I would say probably a combination of both. So very early on, a lot of the rules and regulations got lifted because of COVID. We're in a state of an emergency and a mental, not just a mental health crisis, but a public health crisis, right? With COVID being very widespread globally. And we're seeing a lot of people that were stuck in places that they normally wouldn't have been stuck because they weren't able to travel very quickly. So very early on, they were lifting a lot of the restrictions, even with this crossing state lines. Normally, a therapist and a client have to be in the same state, or at least the client has to be in the same state that their therapist is licensed in. And a lot of those restrictions did get relaxed because this was a crisis that nobody could have prepared for. Um, And a lot of people were stuck. You know, there's still some people stuck in other countries that can't travel still. But it definitely came from the client side as well. In the beginning, again, you know, there was misinformation, I think, and thinking that this was only going to be a couple of weeks. And the longer it went on, it forced people 
to really think about things or process things that they maybe wouldn't have had to beforehand without being isolated and just bring awareness to the isolation and what that does to you mentally. And we saw a huge jump in client demand needing help because this in itself was very triggering for most when it comes to past trauma, past assaults, and when you're isolated and have nothing else but to do, nothing else to do but think about your thoughts or to be kind of present with that, it definitely sparked a huge demand in people needing help. And, you know, they've talked about the suicide awareness and the suicide rates going up because of the isolation. And when you're already dealing with severe anxiety or severe depression, and then you're stuck being isolated and not having connections to those support that you normally would have outside of your own little bubble, it makes it a lot more daunting in a lot of different ways. So it definitely did come from a client side as well. But, you know, insurance companies were forced, especially here in California with Newsom's orders of being in a state of an emergency, they weren't allowed to deny telehealth access because then you're denying support and you're denying that those resources. We're still technically in that state. So we're hoping that Insurance companies don't try and take it away because there's a lot of people who even got sick and are just fearful to leave their house. And you shouldn't tell those clients that you can't now see your therapist remotely and you have to go back in person and put your health at stake again. So I think if nothing else, the client complaint side of things with their insurance companies is going to be the saving grace to keep it not just affordable, but to keep it going as far as access to keep telehealth available beyond just the end of whenever this is declared over correct is there anything that's currently on the books for the state assembly in terms of extending teletherapy coverage beyond like the crisis timeline not that we're really aware of but each insurance company really sets their own rules so some of the insurance companies that we work in particular have been waiving copays since March of last year. And they keep extending that deadline because they don't want to charge people for telehealth. So I think what we'll probably see first happen is that they may not take telehealth access away, but they will start charging copays again, which I would guarantee most clients, if they're not wanting to be in person or they're not wanting to commute because they're not able to, are probably going to be okay paying copays again. Um, Some insurance companies are still trying to regulate it and say that they don't want to provide it, but we're coming up to being, you know, a very telehealth-based position for all medical services for the most part for almost a year and a half now, and it's kind of once you let that cat out of the bag, how do they put it back in because clients are preferring it still for the most part. Yeah, and from a client's perspective, there's going to be some people who want, obviously, to go back into the office and meet with their therapist face-to-face, but there's also going to be a large percentage of the population that isn't comfortable, and I don't necessarily blame them, but how do you restrict access for those people who have depended on you know, easy access? And I think it goes beyond just individual clients like desire like there's some people who maybe are physically not able to make the trip into the office for a number of reasons or like you said there's a lot of people that are now beginning to pop up in cities in California that you've never heard of so access to a a local office with a therapist there for them is gonna be limited 
Exactly. And I think, you know, we've seen a lot of clients who already had mental health disorders that is not disabling, but discouraging for them to either leave the house or when it comes to those kind of situations where they're fearful, they don't have a car, like you said, may not be physically able to get to the office. This teletherapy world we've been in with COVID has really catered to those clients. And it it shouldn't be, especially insurance companies, which I could talk about completely separately, having way too much control over access and, and coverage. It shouldn't be dependent on a client being able to have therapy or not because they don't want to allow teletherapy as part of their benefits. Yeah, I mean, we don't need to get into insurance companies right now. That's a different podcast for a different time. Okay. Um, but neither of us are big fans of insurance companies. Correct. I am a big fan of therapy. Full disclosure, I should tell everybody that I've been in therapy several times. And not that he's ever going to listen, but my most recent therapist from like five, six years ago, Max Ruiz, did a great job. He, you know, helped me through... A lot after my mom died and if not for him you know I don't know if I would be in the position to be sitting here right now doing this show with you and I don't know if I would have the right kind of like healthy relationships around me to to even like foster the creativity that it took to like get from where I was to where I am now so if he's listening Max thank you if not I know I got to reach out to you separately via whatever email portal I can and try and get a hold of you. But uh, moving moving into, I guess, what it was like early on before teletherapy got approved and a little bit after that, like what was that second half of 2020 like for the administrative side of your business? Because you, like a lot of businesses, had multiple offices around LA, but nobody was going into the office. So your boss was still paying rent on a lot of properties and that's like one hurdle to go through as a business similar to my sister's business how they had to navigate you know rent compensation and things like that with landlords so what were some of the biggest I guess hurdles that were in place for transitioning that early stage of shutdown for your typical business model and then moving into a more fluid model to still serve your client base and to still, you know, keep an income stream? That's a good question, I would say, because for us, it kind of seemed this is an industry where shutting down was actually extremely smooth. Um, You know, we have multiple physical locations. We had therapists, you know, rotating different offices, myself and other staff members in different physical locations. And all we had to do was take our computers home and be remote. So I think the biggest hurdle at this point, or at least mid to summertime, probably last year, when everything was still on the fence of, is it going to get a lot worse? Or are we going to come out of this before the end of the year? How do we plan on going back? We, we, we bypassed or moved through that transition where not everyone was super thrilled with teletherapy, but it was working to all of a sudden nobody cared anymore that it was only teletherapy. It was more convenient, um, you know, especially us being based in Los Angeles. Nobody had to worry about a commute. Nobody had to worry about traffic, parking. So again, it kind of feeds back into the access and ease of therapy being less of a barrier for most who wouldn't normally seek therapy because of those factors. 
And it really just kind of came down to if we're going to go back in person, when do we do it? How do we do it? The rules were constantly changing for a long period of time. And then COVID was out of control. So the thought about trying to go back in person was completely off the table for quite some time. We're just now kind of approaching it as more people are vaccinated and things are reopening and some clients want it, some therapists want it. And how do we find that balance of providing both? We do not plan to take teletherapy away. I think it's here to stay. And again, we're providing access, which is what's most important. But we do want to be able to have those therapists and clients that want to be back in person have that option. So it's really going to be kind of a hybrid, probably slow, gradual reopening. Um, And really, you know, we're not forcing anyone one way or the other. If therapists want to be back in person with clients, they'll get to. But we're not going to force any therapist to be back in the office or client because not everyone's comfortable and we you know, really respect and kind of take into consideration the experience for both the client and therapist and really make it as easy as possible because now originally we saw it was a huge adjustment for people to be isolated and be home, but then everyone got comfortable and now this is normal. So now we're seeing the other side of it where a lot of people are still anxious and nervous and not comfortable going back to normal overnight. So we want to try and kind of cater to both, essentially. Okay. And I would imagine that due to teletherapy becoming an option, it probably increased your client base, right? It, it became a lot more accessible to a group of people that you know probably were less than comfortable going into an office to meet someone in a formal setting and I mean you know I'm in my 30s so like there was not teletherapy available to me at the time but I can imagine that the younger generation that interacts a lot through their devices this was all of a sudden like a very natural way for them to communicate in a therapy setting where maybe it was never even on the table before. Absolutely. And I think what we saw a lot of too in the beginning, at least for me personally, with, you know, how we were communicating with friends and family in the beginning was we're doing FaceTime and video chats with friends and family. So doing it for therapy didn't seem foreign anymore. It was natural. And, you know, I think there's still a huge pull regardless that Nothing will ever be completely like being in person, but if you are in the comfort of your own home without adding the different stressors, getting to a therapy office and comfortable so you're not worrying about being in a waiting room or having to go back to work or then sitting in another car commute for two hours – A lot of the time, teletherapy has been just as effective, if not more effective in a lot of situations because people can get to a little bit more of the depth work faster because they're comfortable sooner. And especially those who have like animals at home, you know, clients and therapists can do their teletherapy session now with their pets on their lap. And that creates a whole different kind of level of comfort too, or just being in your own environment versus being in a foreign environment or office setting where it may not feel as comfortable or as natural right away. Clients and therapists are kind of able to build that relationship even faster than they may have in the office. Yeah, that's understandable. I mean, there's a small portion of 
to going to the the doctor's office that's a little bit performative in some way. And I know at least in my experience in getting to know a new therapist, it's like I don't want this person necessarily like judging everything about me the first sentence out of my mouth. So it's like I'm going to ease them into my personality and my problems so that we can develop a rapport a little bit easier. So I could see sitting on your couch at home with your dog or your cat in your lap and just being more in your own space where you're already comfortable and the same thing for the therapist, it may be able to break down some of those bridges a little bit quicker. Exactly. And I think a big shift in, I would say probably a few months into this quarantine phase was the teletherapy platforms like Zoom and Google Meetings very quickly added background options. So those that were maybe really uncomfortable with their therapist seeing their surroundings even or the therapist not wanting clients to see their full surroundings if they didn't have like an in-home office set up gave them that option too to still have that privacy and that comfort with still being in their own setting. Yeah. Um, so... Now that we're at the point where like an entire year of the pandemic has come and gone and we're still, you know, mostly in it, although a lot of the restrictions are being lifted around the country. I mean, here in Los Angeles included just a few days ago, they lifted the mask mandate. Um, What have been the immediate, I guess, changes that you've seen jumping from what was a very strict, very heavily, uh, I don't know, authoritarian is maybe too heavy a word, but a very regulated lifestyle to now people are starting to go back out, have nightlives, go out to dinner like we've done a couple of times. I mean, just I would say in the last month with knowing that that's on the horizon with the state government and the city government being very vocal about reopening, has there been any drastic change from the client side knowing that there's kind of a light at the end of the tunnel or that at least they're being told that there's a light at the end of the tunnel? Has there been a drop off all of a sudden in demand because some of those things that weren't available to us for the last year are starting to become available like movies and dine-in restaurants. And I mean, concert season is coming very soon. So Um, I would say no, actually, I think the demand has increased um, at least what we've seen in the last few months, because, you know, we've been in this year plus where it's been able or clients have and people in general have just been able to prioritize their mental health. And now we're looking at a completely different phase of adjustment where a lot of people are not ready to be back into the normal setting of things, especially in work environments if they weren't comfortable or their work environment's not creating regulations or or mandates on certain things. We're seeing a whole different kind of wave of anxiety and panic in going back to normalcy and really having to kind of relearn how to socialize as, you know, simple as that may sound, we've been forced to be in very small bubbles for so long that, you know, people who may suffer from panic disorders or anxiety disorders are now kind of experiencing that in many different ways with having to go back to normal and maybe not being ready. I think we've also seen that a lot can be done in remote settings. So how do we balance what needs to be back in person and what doesn't? 
and those particular industries that clients may be in are experiencing higher demand in their workforce as well as potential competition for those that may not be ready and don't want to lose their jobs. They're kind of being forced or pressured into it. Plus, we've already seen childcare has taken a drastic change with COVID too. So you have parents who are either new parents who've been able to stay home with their kids and if their job's going to force them back in, what do they do now about childcare when there may not be access still? Speaking of access, what is the current, I guess, I don't know, wait time if somebody wants to see a therapist? Because, I mean, we were out at the movies the other night and there was a therapist behind us in line and, you know, I involuntarily eavesdropped on her, but she was mentioning that she's a therapist and even she cannot see a therapist. So I guess, yeah, what's the availability like? What is the expected wait time in the industry, I would guess, not necessarily your practice alone, but you have the most knowledge of your own practice. So start there and I guess maybe give me an idea of what someone who's looking for therapy starting out right now has to look forward to in terms of the initiation process. I would say it's really mostly dependent on insurance, right? So if someone who has insurance that's overpriced and they need to find someone who's only in network. Um, it's a struggle, but that's always been an industry standard and COVID just kind of pushed that along. If you know, you've got the flexibility to look outside of your insurance, then, you know, for us as a group practice, we don't have wait lists unless it's something for something, you know, like a very particular area. But, you know, part of practice structure as far as access goes is that we are always kind of letting therapists join us as a group in a private practice setting, and we want to always provide that access and not have wait lists. However, on the insurance side of things, um, especially the bigger commercial insurance things, you can see anything from a two to a four-month wait or potentially four to six-month wait. If that's if you're trying to get in-network coverage... Yes. But clients still have the option to come to you and pay out of pocket and not go through their insurance. Correct. And we do work with a lot of insurance in and out of network too. So we're always adding to that availability. But if you have a PPO plan, for example, and you can find a provider out of network or you want to pay, you know, we offer sliding scale discounts, then yeah, we don't have wait lists in our group practice setting. But if you, you know, for example, have a particular type of HMO insurance, then you may see a four to six week wait before you can even have a screening with a therapist and then be assigned to a therapist. So what does, I don't know, the next six months, because we're already in June, right? So what is the next six months to close out 2021 look like for you? Me personally or as well, the practice? Yes, as, as a professional. <laughs> That's a good question. I, I'm a big trend watcher and I like to kind of stay in touch with what we're seeing as far as the, the needs and demand. And I don't anticipate the demand going anywhere, to be perfectly honest. I think that we're only going to see it increase for several, several years um, and maybe longer. You know, this has been definitely an, a medical emergency type of crisis situation 
again, nobody could have prepared for. And going through it in this century, especially with what kind of resources we have, it's definitely going to be considered some form of trauma for everyone, not only on, you know, the literal loss of life and friends and family who have died from this disease, you know, this virus, unfortunately, but really just kind of the loss of normalcy, but comfort and being able to plan and prepare. And how do you do that when living in a pandemic, when you don't really know what the future is going to hold? Yeah, the fear of the unknown is probably present a little bit for everybody. I mean, myself included, but not being able to look down the timeline and really have any answers, you know, I'm sure did a number on people's mental health, especially, you know, if you're used to, say, like going on vacation or you're planning on having a kid or a number of other things. I mean, plenty of people got pregnant and had kids during COVID, but the whole process of being in the hospital during that changed. Right. So I can only imagine like the burden of the last year on people who didn't have the support structure in their home life to help navigate it. And, you know, there's been, if I'm not mistaken, I am not looking at any stats right now, so don't hold my feet to the fire on this, but I'm pretty sure, like, substance abuse went up, alcoholism went up, suicide rates went up, uh, and all those are connected to balancing individual mental health, at least in some form or another. Absolutely. I don't have the statistics off the top of my head either, but... That is absolutely the case. We saw it, especially very early on when it comes to substance abuse and alcohol abuse, because when you're left at home by yourself to do nothing but sit with your thoughts and potentially have things come up that you've never processed or dealt with, then that will definitely encourage those behaviors, especially if that was already a concern to begin with. So again, I I mean, we saw even our Department of Mental Health system was at capacity for several weeks and even a few months very early on in COVID. I think what it's taught us is that you can only prepare so much, but at the same time, we're in a position where we can really take advantage of people wanting mental health support. And in the sense that providing access and normalizing, requesting help or asking for help being all the all the change we could possibly hope for as a silver lining coming out of a pandemic because it had been stigmatized even in those communities that have really struggled with um, you know the the racism and kind of attack on their cultures. We're seeing that, it's okay for them to ask for help and not be shamed for asking for help. And really, therapy in itself, regardless of any quote-unquote problem that may be going on, is just good for your general well-being. And I think we're seeing the medical field start to encourage that as well because your mind and body is very much connected. And if you're in constant stress and constant angst and constant panic, it's going to affect everything in your body. So not only just kind of the access side of things, but being able to 
really make the connection for that mind-body balance and that just therapy in general is good to be a part of and good to kind of include in your regular daily life essentially is going to help in the long run way more than any anyone probably could have imagined before this because I'm grateful to have a very happy and healthy home life as well and I find myself to be very fortunate to where this experience with COVID, I felt like wasn't a huge impact on my life. I was nervous and anxious about getting sick in the beginning for a long time and just my friends and family of getting sick. But being at home and having to kind of like hunker down and work from home was not hard for me. It was easy. I've enjoyed it. It's given me the opportunity to actually do more by doing this remote work and work with people outside of my area, therapists outside of my area which has been really rewarding in a lot of different ways. And, you know, kind of just reeling back in that option of mental health support and being that even if you want that voice of reason or that outside voice to kind of work through how do I future plan now from here, that's not bad. That's good because it's giving you that access to think outside the box potentially and really explore things that you maybe would not have thought you should or need to explore without it being that something's wrong with you because you're seeing a therapist to figure out how do you plan for your future now. Yeah, like you had mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation is that like there was a stigma around mental health. Like, you know, and part of me when I was growing up, like raised by a single mom, like she had to compartmentalize a lot and it was basically trickled down to us and I was the first her firstborn so the messaging to me was that like don't you don't have to tell the world your problems because nobody cares right so it was find a place to bury that and you know I a friend of ours that I was friends with in grade school and that I was friends with in high school like I never even talked to him about my dad passing away until we were teenagers so it had been 10 years of that, that we had been friends, that we had known each other, that he had known that my dad wasn't in the picture, that we had just never talked about what happened because, you know, I was kind of guided that way to not push my problems on other people because uh, probably in part because everybody has their own thing to deal with and everybody has some sort of hurdle in their life that is going to be an issue for them. Right. But destigmatizing the labeling of weakness for seeking out help is obviously a, a big step in moving forward and being like, it, you don't just have to go to therapy because you have, for example, eating disorder, drinking problem, some sort of uh, clinically diagnosed mental health condition. Like, those are reasons to go to therapy, and you can get help with that from clinical psychologists, psychiatrists, a number of different professionals can actually like help you with very, I don't know, maybe acute is also not the right word here, but very not maybe singular isn't even the right word, but labeled problems, targeted. right? Targeted problems. So, 
you can go to a therapist because you're having trouble in a relationship or you have a family dynamic that is not necessarily the most comfortable for you and you want it to be comfortable. So I think it it broadened the scope of public willingness to look at many different factors of the overall mental health condition of the individual because if you have a bunch of people within a group where their individual mental health is not stable and there is no promotion of acceptance in seeking help for that, then that group is filled with individuals who have a problem, but they're not being positively reinforced by that group that the problem is something that's okay to deal with and that actually benefits the group as a whole for all of the individual pieces of that group to have the best possible mental health outlook and overall mental health picture for themselves. If anything that has come out of all of this, you know, at least from the mental health side of things, like the medical side of things is still going to be very tricky for a while with all of the fallout from COVID, but a, a broadened awareness, further horizons for what mental health means for people and for society as a whole. It hasn't been something that's been on the tip of America's tongue for a long time so from a leadership standpoint what what leaders in the country have you seen that have been pinnacle in making this change i mean i don't want to say none of them but i do want to say that i don't think it's been anyone in particular i mean you know newsom has his issues right but the fact that he was one of the first very early on that put the mandate in order to not allow insurance companies to deny telehealth is huge especially for us in california and the fact that he's keeping his emergency order in place for that reason especially is also huge he has a lot of shortcomings you know he's done some great things too but he's a human being he's allowed to have he's shortcomings human. yeah of course um, but that in itself, because still very early on, um, insurance companies were still telling us when we're checking benefits, telehealth is not approved. And we say, well, that's too bad. You can't control that at this point because our governor has an order in place. And if an insurance company would try to not pay us or pay the client for sessions, we could file an appeal with governor's um, or with the governor's order and the insurance company would have to pay it. So I would say, based on my direct work, I think Newsom is probably the biggest player in that. But I remember early on, too, I would say probably when we saw a shift in demand as well, it was probably June, July, maybe end of July, because things started to really ramp up with the holidays last year, as far as the spread, was we were watching a news broadcast and they, they flashed a banner across the screen that said, Pay attention to your mental health. We're all living in quarantine. We're all going through this. Your mental health matters. So pay attention to it. And I had also seen shortly after that, the few times that we were leaving the house, 
the LA Department of Mental Health has posters all over Los Angeles now too saying mental health matters, pay attention to it. So I don't know, I can't speak for anything outside of California, but at least for California, I think, you know, that's probably been the most direct influence. And thankfully so, because if we didn't have those higher ups acknowledging the mental health crisis we've already been in for many years that nobody wants to acknowledge, then this could have been even worse than it already has been to this degree. Okay, well, speaking of California as a state that has been a proponent of increasing mental health access and awareness, uh, I mean, part of your job as practice director is looking at access in other states. And if I'm not mistaken, your practice is expanding into other states. So how has that been because I know there's some on the East Coast. Uh, so how's it been coming from a place like California where this has been a priority to trying to open, I mean, not necessarily branches, but to give therapy options to other regions throughout the country? It's been interesting, actually. And I think the other silver lining of COVID is being able to branch out in those areas. So to clarify, we're in um, Colorado and Tennessee right now, and we learned very quickly there's there wasn't much access in those states. We had a couple therapists move to those areas, so it just you know kind of felt natural and made sense to continue to sp- support the therapist, but to support the client demand there. I would say Tennessee, um, from what we've experienced or what I've been kind of part of, has a much higher demand and it's harder to find therapists and their state regulated therapy options are also limited as they are here. And I think that's the case in all states, Colorado, especially, you know, we've seen that there is a huge need in Colorado just based on events that go on over there, but the demand is very different than it is here. And I think what the biggest thing is, as far as California and the other states is that Los Angeles in particular has so many different industry type people that are either implants from out of state or just born and raised in LA that there's a different level of stress on people living in California than maybe in the other areas so that the demand feels higher essentially. Um, but Nashville is very similar to LA. We've had a lot of California, you know, residents move there because it's very similar. So we see that with the creative professionals and industries there too. And similar to Colorado, like there's, there's a different type of demand in those areas where it's not everyone, everyone is just doing therapy because it's okay to be in therapy. I don't think it's as socially talked about there. Like we see here in LA or in Nashville, Mm -hmm. Or Tennessee in general. Um, but other than that, being able to expand. We're, we're getting requests from clients all over the country right now. And in states that we don't have locations in. So because of COVID and teletherapy, I think that the demand just shifted in very different ways. As far as location-based versus, you know, we have clients who travel constantly for work. So this makes it more acceptable and more 
you know, feasible to continue to do therapy versus potentially having to stop for a month because you're relocating for work. And what locations do you have targeted right now for expansion? Out of California or in California? I mean, we'll start within California and then we'll go around the rest of the country. And um, I would say primary, primarily in California, it's definitely um, we have a San Diego and Sacramento location and we'll probably add we already have you know like the therapist base for Irvine Long Beach Fullerton and then the locations we already have that are based in Los Angeles um okay but to be to be clear just so this isn't confusing for people each different state has its own licensure board for therapists right so if you are living in florida you cannot see a teletherapist or you can't see a therapist via teletherapy session who is a california therapist is that accurate correct unless they're also licensed in florida so the primary regulation and it has shifted of course but the regulation with covid has been the therapist must be licensed in the state that the client is located in Okay, because yeah, it's not just it's not just available to anybody from out of state that can just come in and get therapy through your location in California. So I just wanted to make sure that that was clear. That's the reason that your boss is looking into expanding into different states, right? Correct. And when I mentioned earlier that we are getting requests from all over the country, um, we're getting the request, but we can't you know, work with the client unless we have a therapist that's licensed in another state, which we do have. Um, California is the hardest state to be licensed in. So if a therapist was licensed out of state and then moved to California and added the California license, they can keep both licenses or multiple. We have a few therapists that have three or four licenses um, or different state licenses. Um, They can keep it active as long as they're doing the requirements by that state board. But California is the hardest state to be licensed in. So usually if they're moving out of California or have moved to California, that's a little bit longer of a process. But they may have the other states licensed so they can see a client technically. If if we have a client... or a therapist here in California that's also licensed in New York, that therapist can see a client that's in New York via teletherapy. Gotcha. So, I mean, this may be a stupid question, but would a federal guideline for licensure not make sense (laughs) at this point so that therapists could see clients from outside of their state to help meet the demand? Uh, it's not a stupid question, and yes, it would make a lot of sense. The only the only area it doesn't make sense is for those clients that are considered to be, need um, a higher level of support or be more crisis. It's not ethically safe to be practicing with a client that's not local if they need immediate resources. But in this type of setting where it's private practice and the, the clients or the type of therapy that we're really offering are for clients for long-term therapy once or twice, you know, once or twice a month or once a week or every other week kind of therapy, then yes, that would make that would make more sense because it's it's sometimes hard in this 
other states where therapists are not really prevalent in those states to then not be able to have access, again, always goes back to the access part. But again, because those client, there are clients that would need more emergency potential support or crisis support, uh-huh. then it's not appropriate in those situations. Okay. Makes sense. Um, but in terms of something like access, the more therapists that are available to help a bigger client base, like that's where access is. So you would think that if teletherapy is going to be a thing that continues to move beyond 2021 and it's going to be acceptable, then it would be in the country's best interest to find some sort of universal guidelines for licensing. Um, But there's also like people that are not licensed yet, right? The process requires you do a lot of practicum hours before you get your license, correct? Um, Well, yes and no. So there's a lot of misconception around newly licensed therapists not being experienced, which is not the case because the licensing process is you do your practicum when you're in your graduate program. But once you're a licensed associate therapist is how they refer to it, you have to do 3,000 hours minimum before you can submit that you've done that and then wait to be tested essentially to pass the licensing, which is the therapy aspect of it, and an ethic, a law and ethics test. So therapists are usually practicing therapists for at least five years before they're actually licensed, where you may see a doctor go through medical school, he passes his exam and he's practicing right away. And that structure is very different, right? So the the licensing process, while it should be lengthy, right? I think it weeds out a lot of what there could be a concern for. And therapy is not a one-size-fits-all, right? So the, a therapist should be trained for an extended period of time before being licensed, but they're also practicing with supervision um, for at least usually five years before that, three to five years. Okay. So, I mean, I guess that brings me to the next part of my question was that there's things that exist like uh, suicide prevention hotlines, right? And since this is a phone bank, I'm guessing that these are not licensed therapists that are on the other end of that phone. Again, didn't do my research on this, so do not vilify me. But it doesn't seem like that that is a business model that is geared towards having licensed therapists sit there in a phone bank answering phone calls. Um, I think it depends on the type of crisis line because there are some where they are licensed therapists or they're, they're associate therapists, essentially, that have already gone through all of their training and education. Um, But there's also very specific um, crisis training that can take place in certification. It's kind of similar to um, therapists that work with either kids or adults with autism spectrum disorder. There is a type of therapy that's called ABA therapy, and they're not technically a licensed therapist that in the general term that you would recognize. Um in the different branches, but they are certified and they've been tested and they've gone through extensive training in that type of therapy. So it's kind of like there's a massage therapist training 
there's a physical therapist training kind of branch. So it's kind of similar in that regard. Okay. Because I was just curious, like, if there was going to be some sort of middle ground between seeing a licensed therapist from another state via teletherapy conference, or if you're trying to maybe just talk to somebody that could potentially help you that isn't licensed and is out of state, if there's a, a market for that where the liability doesn't fall on the shoulders of this person that, you know, isn't licensed. Probably not because the liability would have to fall on someone. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe I'll edit that part out of the conversation. Okay. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. It, it'll, I'll leave it in there. Um, <laughs> so part of your job is doing a lot of outreach, right? Um, and you had mentioned to me like a project that you were kind of working on or an idea that you had put out there. But is there an underserved population that you want to help people be aware of, especially over the last year in COVID? Is there a, a group of professionals that needed access to therapy or someone telling them that it's okay to have therapy? Absolutely. The One of the projects was the veterinary medicine field and veterinarians in particular, but really before my jump to mental health, I was an office manager and um, receptionist in the veterinary field for 14 years. And, you know, the front desk staff, the back of the house staff, which are technicians and um, animal kind of care supporters and veterinarians are definitely, I would say, probably close to the top of the list, if not the top. Um, pre-COVID and with COVID, I would say in addition to them, definitely our first responders with what they've had to witness and experience with COVID as well, as far as the nurses, doctors, emergency room, um, personnel, and there's a lot of trauma there and they're definitely the ones that unfortunately in some of the professions, as far as the medical field goes, it's, it still stigmatized because then there's a concern of if they can do their job or not if they're seeking therapy um but there's definitely a need with them in particular always our military of course um i think they're definitely still underserved even though they've increased access for them as well but with covid in particular i think they're probably at the top of the list i know i think it was last year that the senate approved spending again for first 9-11 first responders so do you see something like that coming for frontline workers in the medical field on the back end of this like to give them access to like quality mental health care i would love to be optimistic and say yes <laughs> i think if we have any hope with the current administration it would be there. But my concern, at least what I've heard, is that there's still stigma around, well, they're doctors and nurses for a reason. It shouldn't be that big of a deal. But I can guarantee from, you know, personal friend and family experience that had they known that this is what they would have had to put on their shoulders with COVID, they probably wouldn't have been in the medical field. And I think 
you know, similar with firefighters and, you know, even law enforcement, you enter the field knowing there's some form of risk. You're going to experience with the medical field some form of, you know, dying patients or ill patients, but not anywhere near to this degree. And it's great to hear about the 9-11 relief because just like all the first responders and everyone went through on, on that day, you're you know, in the field to help people and expect it, but not to a catastrophic degree. And that's where I think the boundary and balance is, is finding what is, I hate to say normal, but what is the standard as far as the field and industry goes and where we've bypassed that boundary and where we've exceeded that, you know, over 500,000 people dying from COVID. You, you, you can't really normalize that and no matter how many times you try because yes, people die from getting sick and have heart attacks, but that degree and then the nurses and staff having to be their support while they're dying because their loved ones can't be there. That part is not part of the normal day to day job, no matter what field you're in, in the medicine field. Yeah. And we have, you know, someone in the family that worked in the ICU during COVID and they just watch people die all the time. All day, every day. And that's not what she signed up to be a nurse for. And I don't think anyone does. You're going into that field to help people. And yes, there is always going to be death at some point and to some degree, but not when it's all day, every day for over a year straight. That's that's where it bypasses or that exceeds that normal, quote unquote, expectation. Yeah, and being a medical professional doesn't necessarily guarantee you any sort of greater access to mental health services. Unfortunately not. Because those aren't provided by the hospital itself. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's similar to, you know, they have people that are kind of on call or standby if you need to talk to someone. And that's great for crisis support. You know, we have those kind of... Um, crisis therapists and clinical professionals especially that you see come in you know like after a school shooting or after an event but that's short term that is not addressing any long-term effects that that one individual may experience because of that trauma or because of that experience of just everyone around you dying yeah that's that's why I'm curious if there's going to be some sort of spending bill that gets put forth in the house that addresses the needs of these people who not only had to deal with the trauma of watching so many people die, but who didn't really have any choice but to be in the most dangerous situation you could be in with a disease or a virus like this you know rolling around so i hope it happens i do too and i think like i said if there's any hope with with the current administration i think we would be in better shape with that happening but similar like you said you know not only were these individuals experiencing this level of of loss but they were risking their lives and and exposed all day every day for it in the process and then having to go home or really not go home to family members if they were concerned about getting their family members sick. You know, a lot of doctors and 
medical professionals were not seeing their loved ones through all of this because there was such a great risk. So I do hope so. And I think it would be in everyone's best interest if they did because I can guarantee they are not trained going through nursing school or, you know, their medical exams on supporting their own mental health and dealing with that too. So yeah, some doctors already have really terrible bedside manner. So imagine (laughs) like having to be in the middle of this and navigate their own mental health plus the families. Um, It's, it's interesting. I hope something gets put forth. I mean, it may be something where I even, I'll take the time and reach out to my state assembly person and just ask if anything like that is in the works. And since I have some of that contact information, I have a friend now who's on city council for one of the neighborhoods here in LA. So maybe have some connections to be able to not necessarily pull strings, but reach out to some of these folks and see if that can be put on the radar. Yeah, I think that's great, especially I know there is one um, already in place or in the process, hopefully still, as far as legislation being passed to um, not allow insurance companies to deny claims due to medical necessity, which is huge, especially in a therapy world. Um, So we'll see. I'm hopeful that if that's already been passed or still in the process of being passed, that would be a huge game changer too when it comes to access and it should hopefully leak out into the other areas of medicine. Well, I think we've done about an hour. I mean, it went by pretty quick. I it told did. you it would. Yes. Thank uh, you. I'll, I'll give you this opportunity. I don't think we talked about it necessarily, but is it accurate to say that your practice is one of the fastest growing group practices? I mean, definitely in California, but would you say nationwide that's an accurate assessment? I think it's hard to say. I know based on my personal experience, we're a unique group practice and how, you know, we kind of operate and what we provide. So I think we've definitely grown a lot more than we anticipated in a shorter period of time, especially being in a pandemic. Um, so I would say we're growing pretty rapidly, which is exciting because again, you know, our mission and the practice owner's mission has always been about access. And she started on her own in this private practice setting and pretty much expanded and grew to accommodate clients because it's more often than not when you have to call 20, 30, 40 providers to try and find someone who's finally going to either answer the phone, email you back, or say, yeah, sure, I have room to take you on and really just, you know, provide as much customer service as possible to make it easier. And I think that has allowed us to really not just want to expand, but given us the opportunity to continue to expand so that we're not telling clients no and that we're not saying we're full, we're no, we're not taking new clients anymore at this time, and that they're welcome unless they need something or a level of care that we can't offer, like we don't have medical or crisis staff, then, you know, we would refer to other groups that we work with that offer those services or psychiatry needs. So I would say it's, I would say we're probably in pretty good shape as far as being a group that's expanded, but there's also not many other groups like us, so... We are client-centered in 
our matching process. So we're not randomly assigning clients to therapists where most other groups or when you call an insurance, your insurance company and say, hey, I want to see a therapist. They're just randomly booking an appointment. They have no idea what you're looking for. And they have no idea what the therapist experience may be and if that's a mutual match. So we take a lot of pride and spend a lot of time listening to client feedback about what they want and what they're looking for in their areas of focus. And our team spends a lot of time listening to clients and their needs and matching them with a therapist that specializes in those areas. And we also leave the room open to share feedback with us. We love feedback because it enhances the therapy process and we are really advocates for clients and advocating for clients to be advocates for themselves because it's a really hard thing to do in the medical field especially. But when it comes to therapy, this is a long-term relationship you could potentially be building with someone and we take that seriously. And therapy is an investment in yourself. You're investing in your own self-care and it's probably one of the only things that you'll do on a regular basis that is in the medical field other than if you need physical therapy or something like that. So we take the therapy, the therapy investment very seriously and not lightly so that we try and match as closely as possible based on what they're looking for and not using a computer system to figure that out for them. We're real humans listening to clients and wanting to help really. And all of our team you know, members that we have in the group are in this because they're passionate about mental health. They're either students or practice or, you know, therapists in training themselves. So there's a different level of compassion and empathy and really heart in what they're doing in helping clients find the right therapist. And you have your degree in psychology as well. Correct. Um, and one of the bigger hurdles in therapy is getting past the first session with a new therapist, right? Because there's a lot of trust building that needs to take place in order for you to actually get to a, a, a place where this person can help you work through the problems that you're approaching them to help you work with. So your matching system is designed to kind of take a little bit of the guesswork out of the client's hands to give them a more tailored experience when they actually have their first meeting. But you also offer no problem rematches if that client is not happy with their first session. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, one of the biggest things that I really love about our group practice is that we are owned and operated by an actual therapist. And most of the other groups in general are not. So everything that we've put into place and that the practice owner has created has come from a therapy position or, you know, some form of psychology based decisions. And like I said, we really listen to client feedback. And we know a lot of times when clients find us, they share with us, they've called 50 people. Um, they've seen three or four therapists before they can't find the right match. And it's because of those variables being removed that we add to the situation. And like I said, we're, we're very involved in advocating for clients and them advocating for themselves. So we do check in with clients. We're big supporters of the patient informed care model. So we ask them, how are your sessions going? Are you happy with your therapist? Do you feel like maybe you want a rematch? Are things going Okay. And we, we want to pretty much just keep the conversation open because 
this industry standard, at least in private practice, and don't quote me on this percentage, but it's somewhere between 75 and 78% of clients will do one therapy session and never do therapy again. And our goal has always been to get ahead of that curve because we want clients to be engaged. We want to keep them involved. We want to keep that conversation open because, again, this is a relationship-based process and that relationship is important to build. So we do offer rematching at any time if they're feeling like the therapist is not a good fit. We ask why they feel like it's not a good fit so we can be mindful in the match. And, you know, my approach from the beginning has always stemmed from I think this is the best therapist for you based on our conversation, what you shared you're looking for, and based on my knowledge of the therapist that I'm recommending. We're very involved with our therapist, so there's more of that personal touch, but it's still your therapy session. So if you don't feel like it's a good fit, you let me know. It's not personal. It's not punitive. I'll rematch you at any time because therapy is not going to work if you're not feeling that match is correct or it's not a good fit with your therapist. Well said. Thank you. Um... Are you still currently actively hiring new therapists? Yes, we are. Okay, so still expanding. Uh, Is there a website you want to plug? I mean, I know there's a website, but do you want to plug it? For anybody that's looking for a group practice that they want to join as a therapist, or if you're a client and you're looking for services in, what are those three locations again? California, Colorado, or Tennessee. And what is the website? (laughs) Silverlakepsychology.com. There you go. Um, Not to be confused with others, but it is silverlakepsychology.com. And they can do all their own appointment booking and stuff through the website? Um, Not entirely. So, you know, it gives them the access to fill out a contact form or they can just call, you know, we or a website Mm -hmm. chat. We cater to whatever a client may be comfortable with. And we understand not everyone wants to talk on the phone about why they want to go to therapy. So we do have a website chat option. They can call or they can just fill out a contact form online and it comes directly to, you know, our main intake and a coordinator will reach out to them with, you know, a matter of 30 minutes typically, depending on, you know, the day. And, you know, we have intake team members in Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. So we are pretty available and we pride ourselves on quick response times because we know it's hard to get responses and people are busy and we want to make it as easy as possible, whether they're emailing us on their lunch break or at 10 o'clock at night because that's when they have time and we'll respond to them as quickly as possible. Yeah, the human touch is underestimated these days. A hundred percent, especially with our tech run world and really being dependent on it with COVID, unfortunately, but it also is just making it a little bit easier. And we know, you know, clients may reach out. Sometimes we have clients that email at midnight and we'll see it first thing the next morning and we'll respond right away. So they can request, you know, what they're looking for. They can share what they're looking for. We'll check insurance before they start. So we're very transparent so they understand what, you know, what they're getting when they start. And again, if they are not happy with the therapist, then we'll rematch them. Is there anything else that you wanted to say that we didn't talk about today? I don't think so. I think we covered most of the important topics. Yeah, we did. I tried to steer it in those directions as much as I could, give you the opportunity to fill everybody in, uh, speak from your experience. And I appreciate you taking the time to come in and 
talk with me. I know we're both very busy these days. Yes, and I appreciate you wanting to have me. And I, you know, it, it's it's one of those things where I think the mental health field has been underestimated and just kind of pushed to the back burner. But everyone in the mental health field has been first responders through all of this as well. And it's important to kind of recognize that and allow people to have the space to look for help and support, even if it's just for their general well-being. So let's all write to our local state and city representatives and tell them that we want a first responder, a COVID first responders mental health bill in state Senate by the end of the year. Yeah, and I think let's maybe add to that too to not take away telehealth access. Those are good things. Mm-hmm. I'll make sure I do that uh, first thing Monday. Thank you. Thank you for your support. And whoever else listens to this, you can do that too. <laughs> Show your support for your first responders. Um, moving forward, this isn't the only time you're going to be in the studio with okay. me. Uh, okay. We don't necessarily have to come back and talk about this unless something happens in the mental health field. We'll we'll save Andrew Yang getting blasted for his comments on mental health uh, for another time because he's he's fourth in the polls in the I think the mayoral race for New York so it looks like he's not going to win anyway so a lot of the things that he's saying are you know they're gonna go away unless he continues to voice that after the election's over um, but starting during football season we're gonna do our fantasy football podcast because you are part of the fantasy <laughs> football league that I started a few years ago and you're better at fantasy football <laughs> than I am at this point so I think the first episode we'll do on draft night so we'll come in here we'll set everything up and when we live draft we can live we can sit here and talk shit during the draft and uh i'm totally taking alan well you're gonna have to move up and draft him really high (laughs) i mean he's like the second rank fantasy quarterback this year i'm taking digs then Uh, take digs that's fine i'm not upset with that I need to start drafting my team based on who the best available player is, not like re- way overreaching to draft all Bills players. That didn't work out for me. And you're not going to do all seven teams this year either? That didn't work for me either. <laughs> Although, I mean, Chark should have a bounce back year. I mean, Devontae Adams wears 17, so that's not a bad number to have. But Alshon Jeffrey also wears 17, so who knows? I don't know. I can't be the edge of 17. I got to just have one guy that wears 17 on my team. I mean, that's totally doable this day and age it's doable so i think we'll we'll do that first draft night okay and then maybe after thursday night football because mm. that'll end around eight and we can come in and we can maybe talk about that particular game and then the the games that are on the docket for sunday we'll go through some lineup stuff and maybe some football news and I don't know. I think it'll be fun, though. I love football. I already write about football every week during the season, so I might as well come in here and talk about it and get it out of my brain faster. Yeah, so that means I actually have to play fantasy football again this year. You do have to play. I don't, you finished twice. You finished twice in second place in back-to-back seasons. Yeah. And then last season, you made the playoffs and lost, I think? Yeah, because yeah. COVID made things so much more difficult. It did. All of my players got COVID. 
No, I didn't even make the playoffs. So. <laughs> you know, you, <laughs> I don't. I haven't uh, made the playoffs maybe once in the last like five seasons. Not since I've been playing. Right. No, I made I made it once, and I I didn't play Doug Baldwin oh, right. in his final season. Oh, there yeah. was one game where I was like, I just want him on my team, and they were playing the Niners, and it, like he always roasts the Niners, but for some reason I just didn't play him that game. He ended up having a big game, and it would have been the difference. Oh, see you if hear we're gonna. You know, I I can hear. I don't know if the if set. I don't know if the settings recording. on the equalizer are high <laughs> enough to see it. Uh, but sounds. Fun. That's why we closed the door and we have an office, but we need to soundproof it a little better. Yeah. Um. So yeah, we'll do that, and we'll do it weekly during football season, and uh, I guess that's a wrap. All right. Thanks for having that me. That was fun. Thank you. It was fun. We'll see when I actually get this thing posted. All right. I need to learn how to do all the rest of the stuff now. <laughs> I can't wait. Thanks to everyone who took the time to listen to the episode. If you enjoyed it, you can help me out by liking, subscribing, and sharing wherever you get your podcasts. This show is an extension of thescheiss.com where you can find more content. So until next time, be well, stay safe, and enhance your calm.